Uh, turn with me, please, to uh, Revelations chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 1. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to stop just before or at verse 10. So we will not read beyond 11. And there's enough in here. There's lots in here. So we're going to have to try and move quickly if there is such a thing. Okay, Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, and the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever may God bless the reading of his word like I said this covers a lot of territory and we're going to do this flyover so we're going to touch on certain things but you're going to leave here hopefully hungry for more, hungry for more in-depth, um, maybe more explanation, and that's fantastic, and I would highly encourage you to dig more, dig into the Word, look into it, and uh, study it more and more. But to begin with, the first three verses deal with uh, Satan being bound. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon. So let's just pause there for a moment. This is such an interesting view of authority. Have you ever thought about authority? We think of authority in, in this uh, um, day and age or power in, in the sense of physical power, typically the power to move something. And, and yet here we see, um, you know, this this dragon who we've read in previous uh, chapters, who is so powerful and so um, fierce and scary and so on. It says, "I saw an angel come down from heaven, and he laid hold on the dragon." There's no commotion, there's no uh, uh, fuss, there's no battle, there's no struggle. He just lays hold on him. And this is a a view into the authority that this angel has and the authority that the spiritual world uh, understands and and fully functions in. Much, much different than us. We think only in terms of physical might, perhaps. Might makes right. And yet, this level of authority is something that we sorely lack. 
This understanding of who is in charge, who has the authority. And if you look at, uh, especially in this time and age that we live in, authority is so poorly understood and so poorly respected. Um, we need to learn and the, the, the lesson here that we can see that even though the dragon who is so powerful in the earth, so fierce and has so much um, uh, authority given to him at times, he was by an angel. It doesn't say it was the Lord Christ necessarily, although it may have been, but it doesn't tell us exactly if it was, but he was, he understood. The authority was given to this angel to take him, to take hold of him. And it says, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, we've heard this phrase before. This is, uh, in, if we look back to Revelations chapter 12, we see a, a similar time uh, when they use this phrase. It says, and the dragon was cast out. So this is talking now about the vision of the, the heavens. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And it says, which deceiveth the whole world. So here we have that same description, the same, uh, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. And this time again, he is, he is grabbed and he is cast into the bottomless pit, it says here. And shut up, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. In Revelation chapter 12, we saw that Satan was that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and he was cast out of heaven so that he could accuse the brethren no more. And so we see that diminishing capabilities here. First, he was before in the heavens bringing accusations against the children of God. And once that was robbed of him by the authority of Christ, by the blood of Christ, which answers all accusations against the children of God, he was cast out of heaven. No longer did he have an audience to bring accusations against the children of God, which is a beautiful, beautiful fact that we have to let our hearts settle on, is that we don't have an accuser anymore because the blood of Christ answers all accusations against us. And here, even now, he should deceive the nations no more. Even further, the only thing that he was able to do anymore on the earth was to go about and to deceive the nations, to to lie and to uh, blaspheme and to tell lies about God. And even that's now taken away from him. He was cast into the bottomless pit, and he, it shut him in and sealed him up there. And no longer is he able to at all influence the world and, and the people of the world. And so that's the first three verses. We see um, the binding of Satan happening here. And then it goes into... Actually, just before I go into the verse 4, it's interesting. Have you ever heard of that phrase, the devil made me do it? I, I and, and, and I'm wondering if in this season of, 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 of Satan being bound, no longer able to deceive... How will the people of earth respond? Now we know that, and we're going to read here that, you know, the redeemed of heaven, um, are, are mentioned next, and then there's a thousand year reign here, but what about those who, um, perhaps are the descendants of the, the redeemed? Will they be able to say the devil made me do it? Or will humanity be, have this, uh, opportunity to show its true colors, even without Satan there deceiving? Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, 
Neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So here now we're moving into uh, something that's so much debated in the book of Revelation, the millennium. And we're not going to talk about that exactly right now. I just want to go through some of these verses here and, and, and dissect them a little bit. And I'd like to just briefly talk about the different views of the millennium. But uh, first, we're going to talk about who is it that we see here on the thrones. It says, And I saw thrones and them, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, or judgment was given for them. So if we look back in, in Revelation chapter 6, we can see who... Who was this judgment given for? Or it's a very good idea of who it was given for. Verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, sorry, after verse 9. So this is the opening of the seals, the sixth seal. Sorry, the fifth seal. Verse 9 says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The question was raised to God. How long will you not avenge us? How long will you hold off judgment? And here it says, And judgment was given unto to them, or judgment was given for them. So we can assume, I think, that this is talking about those who we see after the fifth seal was opened. Those who were calling out to God, asking for this judgment, but not just for them. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, remember now the churches, when Jesus was addressing the churches, he said in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works Unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. So Jesus is speaking to those in the church, the overcomers, those that keep his works. You will come and rule with me as well. Also in in chapter 3, verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So here Jesus is addressing the churches and he says, To you who are the overcomers, you will be given the right to sit with me on the throne. Just as we read here in verse 4. So this promise that Jesus had given to them is coming to be. Revelation 12, 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. So speaking of the the people on the earth, those who were faithful. and, And that fits right in with the rest of this verse. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. They loved their lives so little or loved not their lives unto death even, it says. And for the word of God in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, it says. So we see very clearly here that it's not just the, the martyrs, as we would think those who were beheaded or who suffered a physical death, but those who were faithful, those who bore witness to Jesus. And in fact, that's what the word martyr means. It's Greek for witness. And, and we use it now in the way of they were through their death, they were a witness. But the actual Greek word is just a witness. And how much more powerful are you witnessing that uh, they love not their lives even unto death? Oh, that's such a powerful witness, right? 
to die for something. When we see something, we, we can, even if they are wrong in what they did, we sometimes see people dying for their cause. But boy, we certainly know that they believe passionate in, passionately in it. And so this is who we are seeing here. Those who not just died for an idea, but died for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. And so this verse 4 here is showing us that in this thousand years, this, this time that uh, it's speaking of here, that those who will be with Christ are those, the believers, those who were faithful, Old Testament and New Testament believers. This is not just for those who were um, perhaps uh, beheaded or, or martyred in the, uh, in the book of Revelation. It says in verse 5, but the rest of the dead, and this is why I can confidently say that the, the verse 4 is speaking to all believers, Old Testament, New Testament, all through time, because it says in verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So now it's speaking. This is the first resurrection that's talking about. Verse 4, the rest of the dead, not until the thousand years are finished. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. So this is the one that we speak of in verse 4. On such the second death hath no power, it says. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So those that speaks of the believers, the faithful, those who died for and, and were faithful to the testimony of Jesus, those are the ones who experienced the first resurrection. And it says the second death, which we will find out later on uh, in the next uh, time we would have this message uh, in, at the judgment seat, the second death is the, or the second resurrection is the second death is the damnation. The second death has no power over those who were resurrected and reigning with Christ. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, it says. On such the second death hath no power. Revelations 5, chapter 9. So go back now to Revelations chapter 5, and where we're seeing in the, uh, the throne room of heaven... John uh, was weeping because there was nobody worthy to open the scroll. And, and then the, the, they said, look, the, li- the lamb that was slain. Um, and it says uh, in verses 9 and 10, so that's the scene. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. This is the people that it's talking about from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And they shall reign on earth, and they shall become God's kings and priests, it says, even as it says here in verse 6. So this is the promise that was, and the, the new song that was sung in uh, Revelation chapter 5 is now we're seeing the fulfillment of this. I'm going to continue on with uh, the next few verses. Then I'm going to just backtrack a little bit and talk about the uh, the millennium, the idea of the millennium, because it, it can't go without being talked about. But anyways, let's move on to verse 7. And now this is the judgment of Satan. 
So we have the, the picture where at the beginning, and, and remember where we were last uh, Sunday afternoon actually, when we, we saw the beast and the false prophet were bound and thrown into the lake uh, of fire and brimstone. And uh, then the next verse, even though it's the next chapter, it talks about how Satan is bound and, and Satan is cast into the bottomless pit and there he's sealed up and he's not allowed to deceive anymore. Well, after this thousand years, this time, It says, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And for a time, he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So Gog and Magog is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 32, verse uh, 38, verse 2. And then it says, uh, talks about how um, Gog from Magog, speaking specifically of a person, but here it's 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 referred to as Gog and Magog are locations. But the point is that he goes to all four quarters of the earth and he deceives more and he gathers these people together. Now I, I don't understand a hundred percent the complexities of, and, and this comes into your view of the millennial kingdom. But I don't understand a hundred percent what's going on here. I'm going to confess that. I don't know who he's deceiving exactly. Uh, is it the descendants of those from chapter or verse 4? Is it, uh, and again, this is all that depends on which way you lean towards uh, when you're talking about the millennium, uh, which view you ha- uh, hold. But I don't know who it is. But I do know this for certain, that they will be deceived and that there will be many of them. It says that they will be, as whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, how many of you have been to the sea? How many of you have been to the beach? Just take one square meter and count the sand. Innumerable. There's going to be a lot of people who are deceived. So now you imagine this immense, immense uh, gathering of people. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And I can only assume that that's Jerusalem. Um, It's still standing, even though a part of it was uh, destroyed in the earthquakes. But here it says that beloved city, so let's imagine this now, those who, the remnant, those of of verse 4 are all gathered together and they are being surrounded by this innumerable uh, crowd of people who have been deceived by Satan. And, and there's a battle starting up. Now, this is not the battle of Armageddon. That already happened. That happened in the beast and the false prophet, and they, they've already, uh, you know, been dealt with. That was before. This is a new thing that's happening here, and a new battle. And this is the battle that's going to end all battles. And boy, again, I think to myself, you know, when in the world of drama, when you want to, you know, hype a story, you want to build something up, right? Don't you, you want this to be so epic and you want it to be so, uh, you know, almost cliffhanger-ish? No, not at all. Because what happens next is the battle just, it ends. It says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Done. It. That's it. There's no battle. The battle that really wasn't a battle. Why? Because God in His um, ultimate power destroys anybody who is uh, not part of His. And, and that's really important for us to remember. Uh, because, you know, there's going to be times when, and I've, I've iterated this over and over again, there will be times when we need to know, we need to have settled in our hearts that God is in control. And we need to remember this scripture that even when it looks so hopeless, 
When, when, when you can't even count for the, the number of how many foes you have all about you, God will deliver you. And, and look at the story of Hezekiah and all through the Old Testament. How did God, del- never the same way twice it seems, but he always delivered his children. And that's something that we need to have in our hearts. We need to remember that because it may not be innumerable hosts of uh, army around you, but it could be bills that are piling up. It could be uh, a loss of reputation. It could be mocking or scorning. It could be physical threats. And God will deliver you. You can be assured of that. And the devil that deceiveth them. This is the devil. Now this is the one who has been with us right from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, right there in the form of a serpent who was deceiving Adam. And Oh, I was so oftentimes I think to myself, if only... If only they would, he would not have been granted entrance into the garden. And yet that one, that foe, who for all the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, has been tormenting the children of God, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And that's it. He was cast in. And for all of, all of the trouble, and for all the heartache, and for all the pain, his end is come where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. There is no more. So how will you live? How will you live with this sort of knowledge? How will that affect you in this day today? Tomorrow, when you go back out into the, to the real world, if I could call it that, into the, to the, the life that you have made for yourself, is this going to stick with you? Is, is the, the promise of verse 4 going to stick with you? Is the promise of verse 10 going to give you courage? The millennium. Many of you may have some uh, thoughts on the millennium. Many, maybe the only millennium you know is the millennium falcon. And there's no debate about that. It's just the fastest ship in the galaxy. But for the rest of us, the millennium, what does the millennium mean? The millennium is Latin for a thousand years. Um, so when the church through history has been reading this, there's three main thoughts that have come up about the millennium. What does that look like? Um, I, I need to address it because it's one of the most predominant things that is discussed when we talk about Revelation. Um, is where do you fall on the millennium? There's three main thoughts about the millennium. What is that going to look like, this thousand years that they're talking about? Is it going to be an actual 1,000 years? Um, pre-millennium is a, a school of thought that says that Jesus will return and then begins the actual 1,000-year reign on earth. Um, as we've just gone through verse 19, we see that he came back and uh, we, we saw the, hear the description of when Jesus returns and that is the, the return of Christ and, and then the thousand year reign follows afterwards. So we need to interpret then, uh, to have the school of thought is typically we would need to interpret revelations literally. A thousand years is a thousand years. 42 months is 42 months, so on. Um, this is a very common and perhaps uh, seems to be the most commonly held school of thought today that the pre-millennium means Jesus comes back and then the millennium starts. 
Um, most of the early church fathers would have been premillennialist. They would have fallen into this uh, school of thought that uh, Jesus returns and, and then Satan is bound and then the thousand year reign of peace and then uh, Satan is loosed and deceives and is destroyed and then begins the um, eternity. The new Jerusalem comes. Uh, so like I said, many of the early church fathers, most of the early church would have uh, been premillennial, thought this way, Papias, Arrhenius. So that's premillennial. That's very, very brief premillennium. Another school of thought is postmillennium, after the millennium, which says that um, Jesus is going to return after the millennium, and the preaching of the gospel will lead to this state of pros- peace and prosperity and victory, and that's before Christ returns. So through the power of the preaching of the gospel, the um, eventually the kingdom of God will be established and we're going to have peace and prosperity and this victory. And then after that state has been achieved, then will Christ return, hence post-millennial. So after this, this time uh, of the millennium, Christ will return. Uh, this this school of thought is often very popular during times of the revival. So think of the in America the Great Awakenings, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. Now think, picture in their minds, right? They have these revivals, and, and all across the nation, the the fires of revival are starting. And so then this thought would really gain gain traction that it's through the preaching of the gospel in our everyday lives, it's in our workplace, in our home, in the church. It, that peace and prosperity and, and the kingdom of God will be established through the preaching of the gospel, and then Christ will return. That's post-millennial. So, you know, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, some very uh, devout men of God would have been post-millennial. Uh, and then there's amillennial, which means no actual thousand-year reign, um, but instead it's inter-advent. So Jesus, this comes from chapter 5, Jesus being victorious over Satan. Uh, Satan is already bound um, by the, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus and how he, uh, he was removed from heaven. So then a millennial don't actually put it to a thousand years, but that's more of a uh, um, an indefinite time between the return of Christ, the, the first coming of Christ and the return of Christ. And that's consistent with numbers throughout Revelation. So you have a lot of these numbers that are more um, representative of, of something and not actual hard numbers. Uh, so this is where that would come from. So you have three premillennial post-millennial, and amillennial. And they're all quite different. And yet, they're all, and, and there's mixes of these. And I don't mean to bore you with all this, but you're going to come across this perhaps. Or maybe you yourself already have a, a very strong view on one way or the other. Um, but even people like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, they were amillennial, or they had amillennial tendencies. So we have people that were very devout brothers and sisters who held to these three different thoughts, these schools of thoughts. They were not, how do I say? The reason I bring it up is because sometimes we can get ourselves into a place where when we're dealing with Something like this. And, and I, I feel like I say, I need to bring it up because the millennium is, 
is such a, a hotly debated topic when it comes to the revelation that I, I fear that sometimes we can get stuck, that we can get uh, bogged down by arguing for one point or another. See, none of these perfectly fit the narrative of Revelation. There's all of them have a little bit of, of, of stretching or, or twisting that you have to do to, to make it fit these. Here's what I want us to remember, though. Jesus lays out in verse 4 who is going to be part of the millennium. If you were a premillennialist and it actually is a millennial, it doesn't really matter. If, if you held to being post-millennial and it actually ends up being pre-millennial, does that mean that you're going to be missing out? It doesn't. If we look back at chapter or the verse 4, we see, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, he is the one who will reign. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on the throne. Brothers and sisters, when we wrestle with revelation and especially something like the millennium, uh, we need to always remember that it's faithfulness to the word, to the testimony of Jesus, that is the important thing. Not where do we stand on, on scripture or this, this school of thought or that school of thought. All of these, all of these, these schools of thought need to point, push us to look at the coming of Christ, to look for the coming of Christ. That's the important thing. Whether you're premillennial and you think to yourself, Jesus is going to return and I'm going to come and he, we're going to reign with him. Hallelujah. You need to look for the coming of Christ. And, and if you're post-millennial and you think that you need to keep busy and you need to be faithful and you need to be preaching the gospel. Hallelujah. And because Jesus is coming, that's what you need to concern yourself with, that Jesus is coming. And, and, and if you're a, a millennial, what does that do to you? Do you... Uh, uh, Long for the coming of Christ. Do you long for, uh, or do you revel in the fact that He has already won the victory, that He is already King of Kings and Lord of Lords? We need to uh, not be so concerned about which school of thought we lean on, but rather we need to be concerned about what does it do with us, or what does it do to us. Um, I, I think of. Uh, The many people that I would, even just as I, I speak with different brothers, I, I, I've come across so many different uh, ideas of, of the millennium and the different things of, of Revelation. But I want to remind you, and I'll close with this now. Last week, Brother Judah was here, and he talked about um, 1 Corinthians 15. And the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, talking about how Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected. And he spoke about the resurrection. And this was compelling because I had to listen to it again because I missed this the first time. But I, we could talk about the resurrection. And we can solidify it in our heads. And we can so well establish that it's a historical fact and so on and so forth. But if that's all it ever does to us, if that's all it ever is, is that it's a, a, a fact, a surface level fact, as he said, we've, we've missed it. 
And if, uh, if we go through Revelation and, and the only thing we're concerned about is, is, you know, having the, the, the right interpretation, or not the right interpretation, but the right standing in the right school of thought and so on, and we've missed the boat, if, if, if my focus is so much, and I, I tend to, to be in the amillennial camp, but, you know, that I miss the, the importance of, of being, uh, looking for my Savior and, and longing for the Lord and, and, and living the victorious life, if my only concern is having the right theology and it doesn't change me, that's wrong. I've missed the boat. And, and what the scripture does to us is more important than what we do to the scripture. You can study and memorize and, and, and analyze and, and theorize, but if it doesn't change us, we've missed the boat. And so as we go through this scripture now and, and we consider the hard things about this thousand years and, and the different theories, perhaps. Uh, maybe you've already thought about them. Maybe you've never thought about them. Uh, but the points that we have to remember are the things that we know for certain. And we need to let that change us. Because if all we ever do is just just wrestle with the, the, the shallow facts of it, we've missed what the point is. We've missed sanctification. So let's worry less about knowing the facts and worry more about knowing Christ. Let's let the Word of God change us so that we can become sanctified and become more like Christ. Amen.